everybody. I'm Scott Bernstein, and welcome to episode 95 of the Jam Days podcast, proud partner of the Osiris Media Network. Osiris recently launched the second season of the Fish podcast, Undermine. Season two examines the community that formed around the band, with the first installment taking listeners through the evolution of tape trading and digital dialogue about fish in the 1990s. Later on this episode of the Jam Base podcast, we'll hear my interview with legendary musician Bela Fleck. Bela's amazing guest-filled My Bluegrass Heart album arrives on Friday, September 10th through Renew Records' BMG. Hold tight for the interview that's coming right up. But first, a few words about this episode's sponsor, Grateful Fred. I'm not sure if you've seen what the guys over at Grateful Fred have cooked up, but they've tapped into a pretty cool way to display our love of the dead on our cars. They started out by making the officially licensed Grateful Dead 13-point chrome bolt. The bolt is exactly like it sounds. It's a perfectly sized, snazzy little chrome bolt, super easy to apply, and it's all designed to blend perfectly with the rest of the chrome on our cars. That's where Grateful Fred got its start, but since then, they've expanded their dead-based offerings, and then some. One of the latest pieces of eye candy is the Chrome Grateful Dead logo. This one will turn the head of any deadhead. It's just a beautifully designed chrome car badge and like most of their stuff, it comes in matte black, too. Okay, so Grateful Fred wooed me with the Bolt and all these beautifully designed car badges. But earlier this year, they rolled out something completely different. And this, I hadn't seen before. Metal stickers. Very different than any sticker I've seen. These things are impossibly thin pieces of metal, and somehow... They've managed to capture just an unbelievable amount of detail with each design. The metal steely is just something that needs to be seen. And the metal terrapins, and the dancing skeleton, and the bears, you get the idea. And naturally, the metal stickers look awesome on car windows. But windows are just the beginning. Now you're able to identify your laptop, turntable, speakers, toaster, TV, steering wheel, mirror, fridge, light switch, piano, toilet seat. Okay, maybe not the toilet seat, but it's always nice to know you could if you wanted to. All right, I really encourage you guys to check out Grateful Fred. Head on over to grateful-fred.com to check out all their bolts, car badges, and of course, those metal stickers. Fish concluded their summer tour this past weekend with three shows at Dick's Sporting Goods Park in Colorado. Each night was chock full of highlights, including well-played rarities, expansive jams, and fun mashups. Be sure to head to jambase.com skinny to check out our Fish Skinny Hub for links to recaps, as well as setlist breakdowns, statistical analysis, and more. While Fish made it through their tour without having any members of the band or their organization test positive for COVID-19, some other acts weren't so lucky. Dave Matthews Band founding drummer Carter Buffert and bassist Stefan Lassard each missed DMB's annual Labor Day weekend run at the Gorge in Washington State. The group announced shortly before Friday's opener that the shows would be presented in an alternate format, 
but the band made the best of what's around by pulling off all three concerts with help from their friends. The members of DMB played in multiple configurations throughout the weekend and were joined by a number of guests, including Mavis Staples, Robert Randolph and the Family Band, and Dumpsta Funk. Luckily, Dumpsta Funk was on hand to support for Friday's show, as bassist Tony Hall has a long history of performing with Dave Matthews. Hall was a member of Dave Matthews and Friends from 2003 to 2006. Tony played as part of all three DMB shows at the Gorge. Kudos to DMB for making lemonade out of lemons. Getting back to Bela, I recently had the chance to talk with Fleck from his Nashville home via video chat about his album, My Bluegrass Heart, and more. My Bluegrass Heart is Bela's first bluegrass album in over 20 years, and he told me why he decided it was the right time to return to his roots in the genre. Fleck described the recording process for the 19-track LP, and his philosophy as a producer. My Bluegrass Heart features a slew of guests, including Sam Bush, Molly Tuttle, Billy Strings, David Grisman, Sierra Hull, Jerry Douglas, Michael Cleveland, and many others. Bale explained how My Bluegrass Heart turned into what he called a community album after first planning on just having a band back him on the material that he put together for the LP. The banjoist spoke about working with contributors in a way he feels gets the best out of each musician. We went on to discuss the current state of bluegrass and its experience recording with Billy Strings. Bela also recalled how he sequenced the album, as well as how he came up with titles for a few of the instrumentals featured on My Bluegrass Heart. Bela will soon embark on a tour in support of his new album. He explained how he put the band together for the run, and talked about their first performance, which went down over the summer at the Rocky Grass Festival. He also detailed some of the protocols that the band and crew will abide by in order to make the tour as safe as possible. Finally, we discussed Bayless' friendship and musical collaborations with the late Grateful Dead guitarist, Jerry Garcia. It's now time to hear my chat with Bela, which we'll lead into with a little bit of my Bluegrass Heart single, Vertigo. Welcome, Bela Fleck, to the Jam Bass Podcast. How's it going, Bela? It's going good. good Excellent. And Bela's new album, My Bluegrass Heart, arrives on September 10th, and it marks your first bluegrass album in over 20 years. When did you decide that this was the right time to return to your roots in bluegrass? It just struck me one day that I just really wanted to do this, and time was marching on. People were getting older. I was getting older. Um, 
I had kind of had to give up on on Tony Rice at a certain point. I was kind of had been waiting for him to come back, back around, and I just kind of came to terms with the fact that he probably wasn't going to be coming back. He'd kind of gone into isolation, and um, also something happened with uh, with one of our kids. Um, we had a, a pretty scary situation, um, life threatening situation that uh, resolved just fine. But oh, thank God. for some reason, after that. I found myself suddenly really wanting to to do a bluegrass record, and I think part of it was like the wanting to reconnect with your community, people. Uh, another part of it might have been feeling like you could be in control of something, which you can't be in life, you know, that, sure. that often. But um, yeah, just I, suddenly I was compelled. I'd been I'd been waiting and putting it off and putting it off, and suddenly I was like, I better do this. I got to do this. I want to do this. I'm doing this. <laughs> and when was that period where you recorded the album? Um, well, it was through uh, 2018. Um, I better make sure. Shall I look it up just to be sure I'm not being a dummy? Well, it was pre-pandemic is it the was point that I'm getting at. Yeah, but I want to. I actually want to check something. Sure. Um, let's see if I. I think the last session was. Uh, um, say here it is. December 10th was the final session of 2019. So I think it was all done in 2000, uh, 2019. Okay. And Actually. so it must have been tough uh, having all it's, it's now been it's it's a year and a half since you the last sessions uh, did anything. Well, well, first, why? Why did you decide to wait to put it out? You mean as opposed to putting it out earlier during the pandemic? Right. What was it because of the pandemic? Did you n- want to be able to tour behind it? Yeah, there was a tour planned for for uh, 2020 that was going to go with it. You know, in fact, I was supposed to deliver it by May of 2019. I guess it was 2000, yeah, 2020. <laughs> Sorry, I'm confused. But at any rate, um, yeah, there was a tour. Um, pandemic hit. Uh, all of a sudden, all the deadlines got pushed back. We weren't going to make the tour. Then the tour got canceled, and all the impetus to sort of rush through it was taken away. There was no reason um, not to take my time with it. Did anything, did you change anything because of this extra time that you wound up having? You know, I would have, I would have rushed through it. Uh, otherwise, uh, getting it done by that time would have been a big job, um, sure. especially since it turned out to be a double album. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm a picky snot, you know, I, I work hard <laughs> on stuff. And, and if, I, if I had to uh, get it done by that time, I would have done it by hook or by crook. But I think it's a lot better because I had the kind of time to live with it adjust it, put things away, come back and listen again, both, both on the editing, because I do live recording with this kind of music. I, I don't, um, it's not like an overdubbing fixing situation or an assembling one person at a time situation. This is like real people in the room playing, which means they all leave. And I've got, you know, two hours of takes of us playing something. And then I dig through it and see where I think the gold is and, and assemble a, a master take. So I had all of this stuff, all of these, um, you know, hours and hours of, of audio to go through and figure out what was there. And, you know, because, because I could work on it over a period of, of, of a year and a half, um, I could spend some time with it, get it where I thought it was good and go on to another song and come back to that one two months later and go, Oh, I'm doing a lot better work now. I, I, I better go back and give that another, another, another shot. Or I might go, I think there's better fiddling on another take. And I didn't, and I missed it. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking. And I go back and, and realize there it is, you know? And so, you know, that assembly process, um, I like live playing, even if you end up doing some manipulation after the fact, like taking a, 
a fiddle lick from one track and moving it to another one. I like that it was played live in real time. And as much as possible, I like to use the whole band for as much as possible. And I learned it from, you know, David Grisman and Tony Rice back in the early 80s. Because in Nashville and um, where I had recorded before, we would, you know, get a pretty good take and everyone would fix it. And, and there'd be a lot of, you know, one guy going in and working on his parts. But when I went to California to work with those guys, they didn't work that way. They would get the band together in the room and they would record the, the song a bunch and then everyone would leave. And then they would cut together the real things that happened uh, from different takes together to make these, you know, incredible live interactive recordings. And I, I, I kind of fell in love with that idea that... Um, Magic happens between people. It's not one person sitting by themselves with, with a microphone, you know, working on their part over and over. I could do that for days and never get anything as good as something that I played, you know, off the cuff. But unfortunately, that off the cuff solo that I did live might not be on the best take. Sure. So I have no problem with taking that solo from another take and moving it into the master take for anybody. And once you open up Pandora's box and allow that kind of stuff, pretty soon you're, you know assessing all the music and figuring out, you know, who played great here, who played great here, how can I make sure what people hear um, shows the best of what really happened. That's how I look at it. You know, I think live is another situation. That's where whatever happens, you embrace mistakes, sound, you know, everything, and, and you let it happen, and you, yeah, you're all for whatever happens. Like in comedy, you can never, if you're doing comedy improv with somebody and someone makes a joke, you can't go, well, that doesn't work. You have to embrace it and react sure. to it as if it does work, you know. And that's how you play live improvised music: is you have to embrace everything everyone does and 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 go with it. But in the studio, you can do it differently. You can. They're different mediums. That's all I'm saying. And uh, you did you record it at your home studio? Yeah, right here where where we're sitting. Okay, and that's in Nashville. Sitting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ter terrific. That was another nice thing about it after what had happened with Theodore was, um, you know, a project where I could stay home and do a lot of work right here in the house. You know, um, it just felt good to be around. Ab absolutely. Absolutely. And there's um, so many guests on the album and, and from multiple generations, which is what yeah. I, I love about it. Yeah, um, I like that too. How did you go about deciding who would play on what? When I started out, I kind of auditioned a group. Um, I, I told everybody it was going to be a jam session and invited these guys over to the house. And this was sort of the, more of the younger guys, guys I hadn't really played with very much. But I sent them some of my tunes and said, hey, maybe we'll, we'll mess with, with these tunes. You know? And they all showed up really knowing them. And it sounded great. So I was like, yes, let's record with this band. What a great band. Michael Cleveland, Dominic Leslie, Cody Kilby on guitar, and Paul Cohert on bass. Okay. And um, we recorded, you know, I think about five tunes. And then I started thinking, why aren't I recording with Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and Stuart Duncan and Mark Schatz? I mean, just because Tony can't do it, they all can do it. And so then I, I decided to do some tracks with them. And once I had opened, again, Pandora's box to like, this could be a community record, then I, well, why aren't I recording with Chris Thiele, who I love? And we have a special musical bond, as, as he does with a lot of people. But uh, we certainly have a special one and, um, and he agreed to do it. And then it was like, well, what would be fun to do with Chris? Oh, wow. Billy Strings. Here's a new cat on the scene. And, um, you know, gradually, and then David Grisman was passing through town playing with Del McCoury. And I asked him if he would come in for a couple of tracks and he was like all for it. And so, so all of a sudden, and then I, I got Molly 
uh, Tuttle and Sierra Hull involved, and you know they're marvelous musicians. And so it just started to become a community record, and I embraced it at a certain point, but it never started out as that. Another interesting thing is when you announced the album, um, the the press release mentions that it's the third album in a trilogy that began with Drive and continued with the Bluegrass sessions. And does does my Bluegrass heart um, tie into the other albums outside of just having its roots in in Bluegrass? Uh, I think those records um, are a certain kind of Bluegrass that I like that, you know, the kind of tunes I write for bluegrass music, they're not, it's not typical bluegrass. It's a certain subset of new grass or something, something, you know, um, but it has like the rules of bluegrass are in its DNA. Like the history of bluegrass is, is in there. And those first two records with that, you know, core band of Tony Rice and Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and Stuart Duncan, Mark Schatz, um, they made my tunes sound so great. It had the propulsion and the excitement of traditional, really great traditional bluegrass, and yet it had this modern edge of, of where everyone was going with the music. So the real question here with the third record was how could I do it without Tony Rice? And um, um, I think it comes down to, you know, my impact on the music, you know, the stuff that I write, the kind of stuff I like to write on the banjo, and um, I write on other instruments, and my kind of vision of how I like my brand of bluegrass to sound sure you know that would be the continuity rather than being exactly the same people which i originally would have done if tony rice was still around we would have done the same band again and it would have been a reunion but instead this turned out this turned out to be that and a lot more and it's coming at a great time in bluegrass would you agree that uh it, the the genre is thriving with the likes of, of Billy Strings and the the String Dusters con- continuing to to build a, upon the tradition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a long history of um, of playing around with bluegrass and growing it into new directions. And every every uh, generation needs its own people that do that in a way that uh, makes sense to people of this time. And if people don't do that, it's going to get stuck, and it'll be a history piece you know, a museum piece, I guess I should say. So the truth is music is healthy when there's a lot of different viewpoints being represented. And so you've just mentioned some of the people that are pushing it, you know, and, and looking for the, the new direction and the now of it. But to really represent it properly, you have to have like a lot of different people's perspective and people that maybe don't want to do that should also be included. So somebody like Michael Cleveland, I've always thought as a you know, pretty deep traditionalist. And I'm excited to have him on the record because he comes from that place. Everything he plays sounds like is 40, 50 years old, maybe older. And, um, and yet he could find a way into this new music too. Um, now I think, I think you run into trouble when you have like 
one artist that everybody thinks embodies the music so much that they stop listening to everybody and they start listening to that one person, you know, and it, it could be somebody like Wynton Marsalis in jazz that had so much, he did, did such great, interesting interviews that, um, you know, he became the only guy people like he had almost undue influence and he should have had a lot of influence. He's a strong guy with really good ideas and perspective, but there weren't other influences equal to his that were getting the same press time. And so with bluegrass, it should be the same way. There should, people from, there should be people from all over it that are being heard and, um, and are influencing the music. That, that's a great point. And, um, you know, we, we've, we've talked about Billy a little bit. And, um, you know, and I, I think uh, that that's one of the things that I love about Billy Strings' music is that he isn't tied to he, – he, he does seem to have learned from – listen to and learn from many different bluegrass musicians and not just one particular style. And he uh, also puts uh, rock and, and some blues into there as well. Um, how was your experience re recording with Billy? I loved it. You know, a lot of times people who are good at those other styles aren't actually that good at bluegrass. And that okay. sometimes is the thing where you're like, oh, you know, he's really, you know, he he's playing bluegrass, but he doesn't really know it. Not true of Billy. Billy really knows it. And so when he plays, you know, a, a, a Jimi Hendrix lick in the middle of a bluegrass tune, he finds a way to make it work because he knows Doc Watson inside out. You know, he yeah. knows the real. And I also like that he's not a Tony Rice clone because we had that problem with a guy who had so much influence that everybody tried to play like him. And then all of a sudden, all of these other styles of guitar start to get lost, which goes back to what I'm saying before. If everybody listens to me, or Chris Thiele and tries to play like that, what happens to Bill Monroe style? What happens to the Sam Bush style? Sure. What happens to all these other people? So it's the problem when some, something so unique becomes the standard rather than being the outlier. Uh, because it, but at any rate, he, he's, um, I love the thing about him that he, you know, for one thing, he's, he's passionate. He truly loves the music. Uh, he really gets the tradition and he has his own take on where to go with it. Absolutely. And just to hear um, one of the things that I particularly love about the album is that you included some banter um, sometimes before the track, sometimes after the track. And uh, it's great to hear his excitement come through. And yeah, he was so happy. You know, he, he I love that. I, lo I, I love, you know, I loved working on the, the album and get and hearing at the end of each track, like, the things people would say. And of course I couldn't, I couldn't use everything. Some things were, uh, expletive and, sure. and, and fun, you know, and, but, but, you know, you don't want to put that out there. You don't want to offend anybody, but, um, yeah, he's just, he's, he's alive. He's, he's living it in real time. He's, he's not 
uh, too much in his head. Sure. Yeah. And over how long of a period of time did you assemble the, the songs that you wrote for My Bluegrass Heart? Some of these come from the 80s, like there were pieces wow. I wrote on the guitar back then and they didn't fit drive and they didn't fit bluegrass sessions. And then 20 years went by and I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget these things. Um, some of the you know, tunes I wrote on the mandolin, like Old Northwoods, I wrote on the mandolin. It was a Bill Monroe style tune. I, you know, sometimes when you don't, you don't play an instrument that well, you'll pick it up and write something. Um, Tentacle Dragon, I wrote on guitar when I was trying to flat pick back in the 80s. I always thought I wanted to get someone like Mark O'Connor to play it or Tony Rice to play it and, and never got to it, never fit anything I was doing. And then this time it did, you know, and Billy did a great job on it. And what guidance did you give the, your contributors when you would send over the song? Um, well, let's see. What a, I, I have a philosophy of as little interference as possible. Okay. Um, um, so I would send them the music. I would send them the melodies, maybe the chords, um, or I would sit with them and show it to them in person. And, um, and you know, if, uh, I arranged the music. I would make suggestions, but I also loved having everyone's suggestions. But I feel like if you get into telling people too much exactly what they need to do, then they lose their ability to have their own ideas. So I'm a big fan of like leaving everyone alone until, you know, way down the line. Maybe you've already got six really good takes with everyone doing it the way they wanted to do it. And then I might say, hey, can we just try this thing just before we finish up, you know, tracking this tune? Can I hear what happens if you drop out here and you do this here or if you play it a little more like this? I always try to make sure not to do it until I've already gotten their conception recorded because... Once someone starts to make suggestions, it's very hard to go to back. It's very hard to go back to what you naturally are feeling. So, um, and I, the flectones are like that too. I hardly ever tell anybody what to play. I mean, I, I don't feel like I can tell anybody partly because they play their instruments a lot better than I could. And partly because it's a, it's a band, you know, and I want them to own their parts. I want them to have created it as well, because when, when they go tell people about a project they played on, you know, I'm hoping they'll say, you know, I had a lot to do with making this music. I didn't just do what Bela told me to do. I had a lot to do with this too. And I, I think that makes better music and more ownership among the musicians of it when it's done. That's a beautiful yeah. philosophy. I, I like that a lot. And it's kind of the best of both worlds because then you, you as, as you said, you, you do have the, these extremely talented musicians um, bring themselves and, and their own viewpoint to these tracks that, that you've written, but then exactly. you do after you get a few takes done, if there's something in particular that, that you'd like to swap up, get a chance to, uh, at that point, give it a shot. Yeah. And at some later, you know, later date when I'm listening back to the stuff as the judge of what's yeah. best for the final version, I can make that call. And a lot of times I'll try as hard as I can to use what they wanted to do and see if I can make that work. Um, but I'm not afraid to speak up when it's time, especially when the clock is ticking down and I'm not going to get a chance to hear my idea. I want to hear my ideas too. Um, and a lot of these are, you know, arrangements were things that I kind of fleshed out in my mind after rehearsing. The other thing I really like to do is like rehearse without that much of a sketch and then react to what sounds good at the rehearsal. So maybe somebody starts doing something and I say, hey, don't forget that thing you, you just did. That is key. We got to keep that in this, in this arrangement. Um, and yeah, that, you know, that it's, makes it's hard to like listen to yourself and make sure you're doing the right thing while you're listening to what everyone else is doing too. It's, it's a skill too. 
and there's a little bit of trust that it's all going to work out. And, and when you've got musicians this good, you, you can pretty much count on that it's all going to work out uh, just fine. Maybe not ex- some, some, something somewhere might not be what you were hoping for, but some other things are going to be way better than you could have imagined. And um, I, I love the song titles you you come up with. Um, I mean, dating all the way back to Big Country and um, you know, and, and Stomping Grounds, and um, you always do such a good job of des- describing the music in in in, in the titles. And um, let's use "Slippery Eel" as an example. How did you come up with the title for for that one? Oh, you can hear us coming up with the title at the end of the song. Just uh, because, when it's, it's, uh, I, 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 well, uh, Billy chimes in that, uh, it should be called something else, but, but then there's a little talk of, of slippery, but yeah, right. Exactly. And I think that was what it was. Um, and maybe some of the stuff that didn't end up, uh, in between the tracks that, um, you know, where I had to cut it short just to have those things not go on too long. Uh, somebody said, you should call it slippery eel. And everybody went, Yeah. And like, okay. if, if everybody said that at the session, I kind of start to feel like, well, I have to call it that, you know, sure. and it, plus it simplifies things for me too, because it was a, you know, everyone felt that way. That's how Charm School got titled. The song was actually a song in C with harmonics on the banjo. And so I had a tentative, it wasn't even a title, it was just a working title. So everyone knew which song it was, C Harm. Right, C, C Harmonics. C, for, C Harmonics, so which spells charm. And then, uh, then I said to Chris, uh, I was thinking about calling it charm school. And he said, that's great. I love that. That you got to call it that. So when he said, you got to call it that, like, I guess I got to call it that. And it's turned out to be a good title. And I can even see why I've even come up with a justification that, um, you know, um, at the beginning of the song, we're trying to toe the line and do what we're supposed to do play the song, you know, the way we're supposed to play it. But then we're just like wild animals. We just got to start running. We just got to do whatever we want. You can't keep us on the leash. And as the song goes on, we just all go absolutely berserk. But then at the end, we have to come back down and, 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 you know, and, and heal to end the song. So in a way, I think it's kind of the perfect title for that song, too. Absolutely. Um, there's 19 tracks on, on the album. As, as we discussed, uh, it's, it's a double album. Um, how did you go about sequencing? Oh, uh, you know, I just tried everything. I, I just put them all into a, a session, you know, in a row, uh, made, made rough mixes of everything. And I started to um, move them around until it seemed to tell a story. You know, that's, I think uh, the way a song goes from one key to the next is very important. The way the tempos relate to each other and then the overall flow, like where should the big guns come? Like the really involved pieces, where, can, where are they going to sit, where they're going to... Um, really add the most to the record where should the quiet songs come and all that kind of stuff um so eventually once i started to find a shape that made sense to me um i started mixing the songs in that order like i I would mix i i i in other words i had the sequence before i was done mixing so i would start to mix in order i would mix the first song and then go do the second song see how they flowed into each other and make sure that they made sense coming from one to the next and did, uh, did you I, kept, keep I kept doing that, that over and over again, you know, okay. it was all really sounding good. And when you originally came up with the sequence, did what you wind up with, it was it pretty close to what you started with before you mixed? It was pretty close. Um, there was maybe one song that I suddenly realized um, 
followed another song and had a very similar arrangement. And so I swapped it out to the other side of the record late in the, in the process. But overall, the big shape of it stayed the same. Excellent. And uh, you are going to be, um, we're talking now towards the end of August, and in September, you're going to be embarking on a tour, um, and you put a band together um, for the, the, especially, let's talk about the one for the first leg of the tour. Yeah. Um, how did you pick the musicians that are, are part of the band for the first leg of this tour? I had a wish list, of course, of like, who would be, who would I really love to get on, on the first tour, and right away, um, the idea of having Sierra and Michael seem really great because, you know, not only are they phenomenons, but they both have an audience. So I like the idea that you're drawing an audience of, for the whole group, you know, and Brian, same thing, um, you know, just thought of as one of the top guitar players in the, in, in the music, you know, in history. And I thought um, that that's a band that not only would draw well, but, but would be a curiosity. People would like to see what that sounded like. Mark Schatz, I really wanted to use him. He's my old pal. We uh, we started learning together in in the seventies and and moved down south together to Kentucky from Boston. And um, we've known each other for all this time. And he's one of the great bass players. I wanted him. And then I was thinking about how am I going to play this music that has you know dobro on it. It has fiddle on some tracks, double fiddle on some tracks. It has double mandolin. It has double banjo. And it struck me that Sierra's husband Justin. Justin Moses played all the instruments at top professional level, and he's the one guy that could actually play, you know, make all this music on all these instruments. And so I hired him, and he's been, you know, we, we've had one gig already, and he's just, he's unbelievable. I mean, he plays a dobro and can play Jerry Douglas's parts and play them his own way. He can do the double fiddle stuff with Michael. He can do the double mandolin with, mandolin with Sierra. He kicked a lot of ass on the banjo for the, the tunes that I did uh, with Tony Trishka and Gnome. Kelney, he can do those. Um, and he's a great singer, you know, so it's kind of like, it just gave us all of these possibilities as a band, even beyond the music from the record. Like what if we want to like do a Flat and Scruggs segment or a Bill Monroe segment, the vocalists are there in this band between he and, uh, and, and Sierra and, and, um, uh, Brian, the rest of us, um, you know, it could actually be a great vocal band. So I kind of hope this band gets gets a long run, but at the, at the moment we've got you know a good very busy month in September. If it all happens, which I'm so hopeful that it happens, because everyone has learned the music. We did we did one gig already at Rocky Grass uh, at the end of of July. It went incredibly well for a first gig. These guys learned all 19 songs, burned it up. The audience loved it. You know everyone's ready to go, and I just I just hope we get to do it that the COVID doesn't get in our way again. And then uh, uh, in uh, December, I get to go out with, you know, pretty much the drive band, the house band, we call it, because that's the band that's been playing at Telluride every year uh, with uh, Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, um, Mark, uh, uh, Edgar Meyer on the bass, Brian Sutton again, Stuart Duncan on the fiddle. It's, it's, it's just, you know, I couldn't be more fortunate. And these bands will be very different, but both about as good as it could be. Absolutely. And uh, cool for people to get two different feels from um, a, a lot of the same material. And then I believe it's in January, pretty much every, uh, nearly everyone that contributed to the album is going to take part in your show at the, uh, at the Ryman in, in Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. We were able to add, you know, to, to take those two bands, those two touring bands and add uh, Billy 
strings and Chris Thiele to it. And I know we'll add some more people from the record as well. So it's, it's, it's a ridiculous, uh, riches, musical riches. And there's another big gig coming that everyone's going to do as well that we can't announce yet. That's going to be, um, epic. An Ooh, epic gathering. Looking forward so, to uh, seeing yeah. what that is. is yeah, I can't is say. That. Can't say. I'm sworn to secrecy, but there is more. There will be another. And then I'm hoping that we'll be doing a lot of stuff next summer. You know, yeah. um, with with whoever wants to. Uh, the nice thing about having so many people on the project is there's a a big stable of people that could go do a tour. And I love the idea of getting to play with all of them throughout the next several years. Absolutely. And something that you mentioned earlier, the possibility of doing a Flats and Scruggs tune. Have you given thought to the set list for the for these shows? Will it just be material from from my bluegrass heart, or are you open to? Well, bring- it'll depend. Like if when, uh, once we start doing like two set show, you know, like a two like two one hour sets or something, I think we'll be able to start throwing in some some trad stuff. Which we we did a little at rehearsal and then never got to do it at the show. We ran out of time at Rocky Grass. You know, it took two over two hours to play play the set. Um, but I think it would be better if we played, you know, did some of that. It'd just be nice for the audience and a nice for us and a real change up from all the instrumental music, which I, you know, of course I love instrumental music. I, I don't sing, but, um, it's just too good an opportunity to play some great straight up bluegrass, uh, while we're at it. Absolutely. And that'd be a nice treat for, for the fans as well. Um, and as we, as you mentioned earlier too, um, hoping that these shows do come off. We're we're going still. The COVID um, is, is surging. Um, have you and your team discussed any precautions that that oh, you'll yeah. be taking while on the road? Yeah. Well, the band is going to pot up, you know, and okay. we'll all take tests um, before rehearsals, and and then once we uh, once we get on the tour bus, we won't interact with anybody without being masked. Um, I know we can get in and out of our hotel rooms, uh, you know, safely. Um, there'll be no backstage guests. Everybody at the, all the staffs at all of the venues will be uh, masked and uh, vaccinated as, as all of the band are. And, um, and also, um, you know, we'd like to mandate everyone wearing masks, um, but we really have to let the science dictate that. Um, most of the venues have now, um, insisted on vaccination. So that, that's one step in the right direction. And, um, yeah, I mean, with the, with the way this, this Delta variant is spreading among vaccinated people, that's really not enough. So some of the states are are mandating masks and, um, and we're asking for it. Um, if it gets down to the week before the shows and things are really out of control, then we're going to demand masks, but we're hoping we don't have to do that. And I'm hoping people will do that for us, that they'll just, the venues will do it or the states will do it. And then we'll, We'll do it where necessary if, if it's if it's still necessary at that point, and I suspect it will be. Absolutely. Well, let's let's hope there's still a few weeks, and and let's hope we we go in the right direction. Yeah. Gosh, it's very scary. Yeah, our son's uh, Juno, who's eight. He we haven't been able to send him in school this whole time, and we thought we were going to get to send him in a couple of weeks ago, and we just can't. Just hasn't happened. No, it's just too dangerous. Yeah. For for him and his and and his little brother. Yeah. So with Juno and Theo, have, have they started playing band, uh, any instruments yet? They're both, they're both very musical and they love uh, to play all kinds of things. And Theo likes to have jam sessions and he, he drags us all into the living room where we've got a lot of rhythm instruments and a piano <laughs> and a little mandolin and a fiddle. And, uh, and they do that. And Juno's, for one thing, they both sing, like they have incredible pitch and they sing beautifully. 
Um, but nothing formal, you know, I think the fact that we're both, both musicians makes us a little shy to push it on them and maybe too shy. And maybe they'll be, why didn't you make me play an instrument? You know, I would have been good by now. We're a little bit gun shy of shoving it down their throat, you know? So maybe we're a little too cautious, but they're also still pretty young. I mean, I didn't even start playing uh, banjo till I was 15 and, um, they know music very, very well already. I, I, I couldn't see, I couldn't see them not being very musical one way or the other. I think that's a big part of it to grow up in it um, and appreciate it, and then it, and develop an ear, right? And then develop your skills. So I think that's great, and it's a, certainly a good sign that they're musical. Um, but but I I can appreciate that you you don't want to force it on them and uh, no. You know, I'm seeing some good signs. Naturally. I'm seeing. Thank you. Yeah. I'm uh, sorry to interrupt. I, I'm seeing some good signs with Juno now because there's been times when he was like, "Listen, you play banjo, I play golf," because that's what he's that's really, really good at, and he he likes being the best at something in the house. Um, but you know, when we did this show at Rocky Grass, he came to watch it, and he came back shining. His face was shining. He was really excited. He thought it was really great. And ever since he's been asking me to play him Sierra Hull records to go to sleep by Aww. and then he says oh that's brian playing guitar nobody plays guitar like brian you know all of a sudden <laughs> that's he's, he's got getting it you know the lights are coming on and and Stuart duncan oh that's Stuart duncan wow boy that was a great solo I, he's never done that before so you know there's hope yeah absolutely yeah uh, one, one last question, and I thank you so much for your time. Um, this week, actually, uh, the, I believe yesterday, is the 30th anniversary of the Squaw Valley Music Festival oh, wow. um, in Lake Tahoe, yeah. uh, where you sat in with Garcia and, and Grisman. Um, what are your memories of performing with Jerry Garcia, both at that gig and at the Greek where you played with the Jerry Garcia band? Oh gosh, he was just always so sweet to me, um, um, and very gentle. And I, I, I don't know. I guess like by Squaw Valley, he seemed very fragile. His hands were shaking, you know, when he would okay. was playing, and I could tell he was, you know, something was not right with him. Um, but he just had this um, dignity and grace and um, class, you know, as a person, and uh, he was just very sweet. I loved uh, his his and David's relationship, and. Um, I'm really proud of uh, getting to interact with him. Like when we did the Greek, it was a different time. And he was, uh, I think he was feeling a lot better back then. Uh, it was more full strength, you know. that shortly after you had met him uh at the greek had, had you known him for for um, very long when you played i the think greek the first him? place i met him was when uh, newgrass revival played its final concert which was opening for the grateful dead at, at the oakland coliseum oh, I and i didn't that. know him yeah that was our last gig and a couple of years later they had the flectones open for them at the it was new year's eve right that so, I, you know, I knew yeah and that was a incredible gig and he you know he 
came right down to the dressing room and hung out. And he, um, you know, he was very friendly and, um, and he knew Sam, you know, Sam Bush. So he was, you know, hanging out and chatting with Sam and I was there and he was, you know, he was really nice. But at the, uh, by the time the Greek happened a few years later, he was more aware of me and more, you know, kind of interested in what I was doing. And I think I remember him saying that I, I was thinking of things on the banjo that he had never thought of. I mean, remember he was a banjo player. Right. With uh, and quite way. a good one. Um, so that was a big compliment from him. And then when he asked me to sit in with him, that was also kind of a big deal. Um, and, you know, one of the, sometimes things happen and they're more of a big deal than you realize. You know, we were opening for them. That was a big deal. Just to get to play for his audience at the Greek sold out and getting to hear them and being backstage around the guys and then being asked to come up and play some songs, you know, unrehearsed as they were. It was just um, one of those days you remember for the rest of your life. I, I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, Bela, thank you so much for, for your time. Um, my Bluegrass Heart uh, comes out on September 10th. Uh, we'll see if that's before or after this episode drops. Um, but um, it's a fantastic listen. And uh, I thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for spreading the word about the project. This episode of the Jambase Podcast. That's it for episode 95. But thanks for listening and to Bela for taking the time to talk with me. Be sure to pick up Bela Flex, My Bluegrass Heart, wherever you get good music. Also, a shout out to Jake Alexander for producing. The theme music for the Jambase Podcast is provided by Clangin' and Bangin'. Thanks again for listening, and if you can stay safe while doing so, Go see live music.